It's the Healthy Woman Show on WJR with Ann Thomas and Dr. Carol Kowalczyk, presented by the Michigan Center for Fertility and Women's Health. Welcome to WJR's Healthy Woman Show, brought to you by the Michigan Center for Fertility and Women's Health. I'm Ann Thomas, and I am here with my co-host, Dr. Carol Kowalczyk. And Dr. Carol, a great show coming up tonight. We're going to talk about the survivability of breast cancer and the new trends in honor of Awareness we, uh, Awareness Month, Halloween safety, and a visit to the apple orchard. An interesting and informative show coming up next. WJR's Healthy Woman Show, brought to you by the Michigan Center for Fertility and Women's Health. I'm Ann Thomas, and I am here with my co-host, Dr. Carol Kowalczyk. And Dr. Carol, in this first segment of the October show, we are going to talk about Breast Cancer Awareness Month. It's great to see you, and I know we've got a really interesting show planned about breast cancer. Well, Anne, thank you so much. And and I, I'm really excited to talk to these two amazing women who are just making people's lives for the better and, and saving so many lives. I'm so proud of both of them. And I think it's really important in October and Breast Cancer Awareness Month that we have the experts educate our audience about the amazing developments and, and awareness of, of the patients should take. Uh, to to optimize the chance of a cure. So uh, the first segment is going to be just talking about breast cancer in general. And we have a great guest on tonight. Yes, we do. Gail Grunkemeyer. She is a nurse practitioner with Great Lakes Cancer Management Specialists. And her specialty is, is breast. She works on breast care at this wonderful healthcare facility. And Gail, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on tonight. Thank you so much for having us today. And Dr. Carol, I'm going to let you kick this segment off by asking some really important questions about breast cancer. Sure. Thanks, Anne. So, Gail, the first question that people want to know is what is currently the incidence of breast cancer uh, in the general population? So in the United States, uh, breast cancer is actually the second most common cancer, and we see about 260,000 cases a year. So chances are it's, you know, somebody, you know, your neighbor, your family, or your friend has been affected by this. Wow. And, and what are some risk factors for breast cancer? So there are some risk factors that um, are things that we really can't control. So like your family history, your genetics, things like that. Um, but there are some things that do place women at a higher risk for breast cancer that we really have control over. Um, your lifestyle is a huge one. So there's a direct link between um, obesity and breast cancer. So a really good risk reduction technique that we work with our patients on is just living a healthy lifestyle, healthy, healthy weight, and exercising regularly. It does reduce your risk of breast cancer. It's proven in studies. Um, and also just avoiding al alcohol use over, you know, couple of one or two drinks a week and avoiding tobacco smoking as well. These are known to also reduce your risk of breast cancer. Um, and a couple other things we do kind of look at when we see our patients and we determine if they are at higher risk for breast cancer is 
other things too, like um, how dense their breast tissue is. So that's something that you would work with your physician, your provider with to determine what the best screening protocol is for you, your personal um, anatomy. We can talk about that a little bit more later on as well. So when someone is has increase in weight or drinks or smokes, do you have a statistic about how much percentage that risk is increased at all? Like, does the risk double? Does it, you know, is it increased your risk by 10%? So the, there are various studies that show um, various numbers that we could see out there, but we do know that it is a significant amount of risk that it's worth it to really keep an eye on those things that are modifiable and in your control that, you know, will help reduce the risk. And I also heard that majority of breast cancer is not genetic. So when people find breast cancer, the first thing that I'll hear is, well, I'm surprised because there's, it's not in my family. So, so what percent of breast cancer is genetic? Like you mentioned before, that's, that's, not control in your control versus just randomly sporadically happens. So 20% of breast cancers are genetically linked. So you're right. The vast majority, about 80% are, are not linked to your genetics, Got but it. it is something that we do actively check after a woman is diagnosed to determine if there is a genetic risk that we can maybe help their family in the future. And that would be the BRCA one gene. There are various different genes that we look at. Now we're looking at more of a, a widened genetic testing panel. We used to only look at the BRCA1 and 2 genes, but now we know there are some other uh, genetic factors, genetic you know, variants as well that can increase the risk of breast cancer that we look at. And that's interesting, uh, Gail, because uh, when I was training as an OBGYN, I think the statistic was the 10% uh, genetic link, and you just said 20. So uh, that probably has come from the new genetic testing that we're mm -hmm. doing. So I always, as an OBGYN, um, you know, I always tell people to do their self-breast exams. And uh, is that where women most commonly find their first lump, or is it the mammogram that they go to and and what is the first age that a woman should get her mammogram? So I would say most commonly we do find um, breast cancer on screening, routine screening. Um, however, we do see quite a few women that come in that have felt a palpable mass or a lump that they're concerned with, which causes them to be seen. Um, so there are various uh, opinions about self-breast exams. And I would say for us, our recommendation for our patients is that we just recommend self-awareness of your breast tissue. And if things are changing, um, and that's when you should really let your OBGYN or your primary care doctor know when you find something that isn't quite right for you and they can determine the next steps. Um, but screening is also very important. And does that where the dense breasts come in? Uh, is it more difficult on a mammogram to identify a lump? That's correct. So when a woman has dense breast tissue, it decreases the sensitivity of the mammogram. So if we notice that, which the radiologist will tell us if the, if the breast tissue is very dense or not, 
And we can determine from that whether additional screening tests are warranted. Based on that, on their family history, um, then we would determine we do have new tools out now. So we have a whole breast ultrasound machine here that we can use that is is really good tool for women with dense breast tissue. And we also can use an MRI if we need to as well. So that leads to my last question is, is the newest trends in diagnosis and treatment. So it sounds like you've got a better technology with the ultrasounds and the other types of mammograms. Um, what have you found to be, you know, improving the survivability of your breast cancer patients and the treatments that uh, you'd want to share with us? So early detection is huge. Um, we often find breast cancers at a very early stage and it's very, very treatable at that time. So um, we can minimize the amount of treatment that we need to do. We can look at, we have new tools that we can look at the of course, the genetics, we can look at the biology of what types of cells are making up the, the cancer to determine what type of treatment, which will be individualized from woman to woman. So some women we determine can be treated strictly with anti-hormonal therapy, and they may never need chemotherapy. Some are only surgery, surgery that they need. So we look at all these different factors when we first meet the patient and we bring them to our multidisciplinary clinic where they meet with the physician, the medical oncologist, the surgeon, the radio, uh, radiation oncologist, and the genetics counselor. And we determine what is the least amount of therapy we have to give in order to give the biggest, the best effect and the best outcome for this patient. So it's really, really individualized care. We've come a long way with all the different types of radiology tools we have, the pathology, and just the different studies that have been done recently. And Gail, I was just at an event where people were raising money for breast cancer research. And one of the interesting things that came up was that women during the pandemic stopped getting their screening. Can you yes. talk a little bit about that and explain to women why that's not a good idea? Yeah, it's really important to get caught up on your screening mammograms. We have seen that um, in our practice recently that we've had some that are have been delayed due to COVID and you know we're finding some breast cancers that may have been there and women have missed their screening mammograms. So it is really important if you're overdue to go ahead and get that done and just kind of check that box and make sure that everything is healthy and normal. Gail Grunkemeyer, a nurse practitioner specializing in breast care with the Great Lakes Cancer Management Specialist. Thank you for this great information. And we will continue this conversation on WJR's Healthy Woman Show in just a few minutes. are listening to WJR's Healthy Woman Show. And Dr. Carol, we are talking about October and breast cancer awareness. And our next guest is Dr. Carrie Duell. She is a breast specialist with the Great Lakes Cancer Management Specialist. And she is here today to have a really fascinating conversation with you, with us, about someone having breast cancer, but still wanting down the road to have a baby. Mm -hmm. And you both have done amazing work in this area. So tell us a little bit about this. 
So, Anne, thank you for, for allowing uh, Dr. Duell and I to talk about this. I have to tell you, I have known Dr. Duell for years, and, and I am so blessed to know her because not only is she brilliant, but she has such a caring nature about her. She's calm. She's soft. She's practical. And, and when I've sent patients to her, that you know, the, at one of the most scariest times of a woman's life, they feel like that Dr. Duell's in her corner. And, and the nice thing about you, Dr. Duell, is you and your group, uh, as Gail said in the previous segment, are so there for patients in early diagnosis of, of breast cancer and the ability for you to cure their disease is so amazing and great. People need to hear this, that, that if they get their screening and they find their cancer early, there's an amazing cure rate there. And then you're also finding the cancer in younger patients in reproductive age. So, so what I commend you, uh, and I hope other oncologists listening will do the same, is when you're talking about the treatment for cancer, fertility preservation needs to come up because you know, you're going to cure their cancer in an early stage. And now what are they going to do about kids? So uh, my first question to you is, you have that patient who's 28 or 32 or 36, and she's got a lump and it's breast cancer. At what point does the conversation come into play about fertility preservation? So thank you, uh, Dr. Kowalczyk. And I likewise, I, um, I, I would say that you've been so responsive to our patients in need um, who need fertility preservation counseling. And you know, right into your question, the the timing the timing is you know ideally before it happens before that diagnosis and we never can get to that but as soon as a diagnosis occurs i think when you see a young woman of childbearing age you really need to bring that up right at the beginning because um we're learning you know at that moment we're learning about that patient's cancer we need the details of the cancer we need what the treatment program is where we we have we have to wait for pieces of information to come in but at the same time, if we want to try to preserve fertility, those are things that have to be done usually before treatment starts. And so timing is really crucial. And so what happens normally uh, is you'll call our office and you your phone call is a fertility emergency. So when we get that phone call from your office, the patient is seen within days, one, two, three days, of, of that phone call so that we would get involved and, uh, and give them choices of what to do with regard to their fertility. And essentially there are three choices that on our end, we talk to the patients about. So uh, the first and foremost is, do we do a retrieval, an egg retrieval, uh, in order to be able to get eggs to have frozen for when they are planning a future family once they get the green light from you. So one of the things we talk about is IVF. And IVF, from your period to getting the eggs out, takes about five weeks. But we could do what's called a random start, meaning that we don't have to wait for the period. We just get them started on the drugs. And we give them fertility medications. There is a breast cancer protocol. We use Femera as part of it, which is a breast cancer treatment. Uh, to reduce the estrogen levels, especially if the breast cancer is estrogen uh, receptor positive. And then what we do is are able to we stimulate them, do a retrieval, get the eggs and freeze the eggs for when the time comes that they want to use them. 
embryos are more sturdy than eggs. So if the patient has is married or has a partner, we talk to them about fertilizing those eggs uh, because of, of the lower loss rate. Freezing eggs, our eggs are more fragile. So 30% of the eggs will not survive the thaw. If you make embryos, 10% of those will not survive the thaw. So <clears throat> with regard to the retrieval, knowing that there's a partner involved, uh, that partner plays a role in what we do with those eggs. So that's option one. And what we do is we freeze the eggs until the cancer treatment is completed and we get the okay from you. Uh, option two is kind of a gray area. And, and there are many patients who are so worried about their breast cancer as they rightly should be that they don't want to think about going through the retrieval. There's Lupron. So Lupron is, or, or a GnRH uh, agonist where theoretically what it does is it puts a patient in the temporary menopause and hopefully will try to preserve some of the little teenager eggs is what I call them. The literature is kind of gray what, how well that works. Uh, some studies say it works okay. Others say not at all. And so, but it's better than nothing. And at the very end, you know, if patients are very overwhelmed or they don't want to do either of those options, or, you know, if the Lupron does not successfully uh, salvage any ovarian function, then there's egg donor down the road. And an egg donor is where you use someone else's egg, someone you know, or an anonymous egg donor. And the age cutoff to do that is early 50s. So that conversation is, hey, you know, let's get your cancer cured. I'm here for you when you need me. And if the ovarian function's not there again, we've got this as a choice. So, so I talk to the patients about that, communicate with uh, you about those choices, get a permission from you as to the timing of this. And, and then the patient makes the ultimate decision. Uh, for retrieval, we're very proud to have our own LiveStrong program where fertility patients who have cancer uh, get a 50% discount on their IVF and they, we get free drugs for them so that we try to help the financial burden as well. So that's where I come in. And then I ask you, Dr. Duell, um, you know, what time do I have available? And, you know, I think from surgery to chemo is like a six week frame, five or six week frame. So that's where, you know, I do the retrieval and then she goes back to you. Uh, so now you get, you have her and, uh, what are some new treatment advances that you have, uh, to be able to offer these patients? Yeah. So, so the treatment of breast cancer and how it plays the role in the interaction with fertility has become so complex. Um, there's so many factors that play a role, um, in terms of, you know, the timing and the ability and the desire of a woman to go through these procedures. We always try to counsel, you know, the, uh, in, in any case, the risk and the benefit. You know, these women are overwhelmed. They've just been given the, you know, scary C word, and they have a lot of things to sort out. Um, I look at a patient in terms of the biology of their tumor. You know, there are obviously, you know, rarely some very aggressive um, breast cancers that, you know, we all agree we don't have time to, to do much in terms of, um, you know, retrieval or other infertility methods. Um, but most of the time when we catch cancer early and we detect it early, that time frame um, of which we you know, offer these other treatments is reasonable and it gives patients a lot of assurance. The other thing that plays a role is the type of breast cancer. Um, you know, breast cancer is not all one, one type. There are about seven different subtypes. Um, there are the estrogen-driven sub subtypes. Um, when a woman has an estrogen-driven subtype, that that has a lot of influence on when patients can 
do infertility work and when they can try to conceive. Um, if we have a very early estrogen-driven subtype, then our treatments, our anti-hormone treatments are recommended for five years, but up to 10 years. So that, that creates the biggest barrier for women to be able to have future fertility just because of the time frame. Um, a, a different scenario is someone who has an estrogen negative tumor. Those women require a lot of intense therapy up front, such as chemotherapy or targeted biological therapy. But when their treatments finish, it is quite safe and, and no problem at all to you know, try to conceive a child after that point in time. Um, our treatments are much more individualized, so there will be women who receive less chemotherapy than they used to, which will affect the natural uh, infertility issues. But on the flip side, our endocrine therapies, our hormone-based therapies uh, have been now recommended for longer periods of time. So it really depends on the type of cancer that the woman is presenting with, how that's going to impact their fertility. Um, I will mention that the Zolodex and the uh, GnRH agonist treatment to preserve ovarian function is something we really do actively at our clinic. Uh, that is both a breast cancer treatment uh, for some women who we know putting them into a temporary menopause is a better endocrine therapy, but it also uh, in the breast cancer literature has been uh, much more favorable in terms of preserving fertility. And the chemo drugs, Dr. Duell, uh, are they, I've always, as an, with my OBGYN, they're very toxic to the ovaries. Um, nowadays, are there newer chemo drugs that are less toxic or the duration of taking them? Are you seeing better ovarian function after chemotherapy now versus 20 years ago? Um, I believe so. You know, there, and it, it really is probably all about percentages. The percentage of women who have the most aggressive subtype called triple negative um, is fairly low, maybe about 10 to 20% of all cancers. In those women, unfortunately, we have to use the, uh, the drugs that are the most effective against the breast cancer, but those drugs are the most likely to induce menopause. However, there is a huge um, difference in the age that you present. Uh, with your uh, breast cancer, the younger you are, the less likely those drugs are likely to put you into a complete menopause. You know, what we do know is that um, after someone recovers from chemotherapy, that you know pregnancies do not alter their prognosis or outcome. In fact, if you would have to look at the literature, it would uh, indicate that having pregnancy after breast cancer is favorable for prognosis in general. Um, in many other cases, though, because of our new ability to look at the subtypes and the biology of cancer, we can use a lot less chemotherapy in the endocrine-sensitive tumors and in the HER2-driven tumors. Um, we can really de-escalate the chemotherapy that we give. So in general, and with the tool of suppressing ovarian function, I think in general, we, do, we should do much better in terms of preserving fertility with the new techniques. Um, I will say that nothing makes me happier as a breast oncologist to see pictures um, of the babies that my former patients have sent to me that they have had after their uh, treatment is over and their years out. And it does warm our hearts and it strives, makes us strive to, to do even more in this, in this field. That is so wonderful. And then I get your okay. So like you said before, I'm either given the green light five to 10 years afterwards or right away. And, and that's where the, you know, fertility preservation of the embryos are, because if you freeze your embryos at 33 and you're 43 and you get the clearance from Dr. Duell, 
you have 33 year old embryos that you can still try to get pregnant with. So, you know, listening to this conversation just makes me smile because you both, Dr. Carrie Duell, Dr. Carol Kowalczyk, you're bringing so much hope and comfort to these women who present with breast cancer. You know, the idea that, you know, life is not over and that they could have children down the road. Wow, this is incredible work. Very, very impressive. Dr. Carrie Duell, thank you for your time today. Thank you. And Dr. Duell is a breast specialist with Great Lakes Cancer Management Specialists. You are listening to WJR's Healthy Woman Show, and we will be right back after these messages. listening to WJR's Healthy Woman Show. I'm Ann Thomas. I am here with my co-host, Dr. Carol Kowalczyk. And Dr. Carol, we now switch gears and check in with Oakland County Sheriff Michael Bouchard. We want to talk about Halloween safety and his candy drive that takes place every year right after Halloween. Michael, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Always fun to be with you guys. Talk to us a little bit about Halloween and 2021. It sounds like it's going to be pretty safe, COVID-wise, for children to get out there, to get outside, and to trick-or-treat. So what kind of advice do you have for parents this year? Well, yeah, I mean, certainly it's the, the original kind of social distancing. It allows you to, you know, walk outside to keep distance between you and other folks and and uh, go up to the doors individually. Obviously, you don't go inside. Um, that's a safety recommendation, COVID aside. You don't know necessarily much about the folks' house that you're at unless they're you know, a longtime friend or neighbor. So we never recommend you go inside of a house anyway as a trick-or-treater, especially if your parents aren't with you. Um, but, you know, what we do suggest is that when you get done from trick-or-treating, um, whether your parents are with you or not, you never you know, 100% know what's in the bag. Um, so I always would have my children, and this is what we recommend, dump all of the candy out on the floor and then sort it. You know, it gives them a chance to get excited and see, oh, I got three big Butterfingers or whatever, you know, their favorite candy is. And they go through the whole thing. And while they're doing it, you can kind of look at each individual package. Does it look open, adulterated? Is there anything that's concerning? If there is, just throw it away. If there's any candy wrappers or packaging that's open, throw it away. We haven't seen a lot of food tampering, you know knocking on wood here for years, but it's something that, you know, was always in the back of our mind. So just take a look at everything. Plus it gives you a chance to teach them a little about economics. <laughs> the other thing I used to do to our kids is I'd say, okay, you went out and worked real hard today and got all this candy. Uh, now I'm representing government and I'm going to tax it. And <laughs> I would take some of my favorite candy. And they still remember that lesson to this day. <laughs> that is cute. I love it. Awesome. What is your favorite candy? Um, I have such a sweet tooth. I have so many different kinds. I love Heath Bar. I love all sorts of chocolates, you know, Kit Kats, you name it. If it's got sugar, I'm in. Oh, that is cool. I like Milky Way Darks uh, Minis Frozen. So I grab all those from my kids' things. I am on the same page with that frozen bed. I'm with the Milky Ways. I don't love them when they're when they're not frozen, but when they're frozen, they're awesome. They're amazing. How about you, Ann? I like anything with mint. Anything, you know, the, the, uh, those chocolate mints are the best. Now, 
you do a wonderful thing, Sheriff Bouchard, for parents and dentists in our community by having a candy drive that starts the day after Halloween for veterans. Talk a little bit about the candy drive and how it works. Yeah, so on November 1st to the 3rd this year, um, any of our substations will accept any candy that you want to donate or have collected. Lots of times, you know, some homes may not see the kid volume that they were anticipating, so they got bags of candy and they don't want it in the house. (laughs) So it's a good way for them to drop it off at our substation. Um, And what we do is we work in conjunction with different mom groups of of the military and other kinds of groups and we get ultimately the candy shipped to our deployed military around the world we'll let them know that you know we are thinking about them we appreciate them and here's a little taste a little sweet taste of home (laughs) it's such a nice effort i bet they are really appreciative of this effort sheriff yeah, they are. And we also encourage the kids if they want to put a little note inside, you know, their donated candy. So we include notes from kids saying, you know, thanks for your service and your sacrifice and those kinds of things. And they draw them lots of times with crayons and they're super cute. And, you know, having a son in the military, I know what the support of the people means to the, the men and women that do that job. That is a, how long has this been going on? Oh, gosh, we've been doing this probably 20, 15, 20 years, long time. That's awesome. It's such a great effort. Now, before we let you go, give some advice to parents about what the kids should be wearing on Halloween night, because it's dark now at that time, at this time of year. Sure. Um, So here's some basic things. Before you go out, especially if you're going to let your kids go out without parents, if they're a little older, not a bad idea to just check and you can access it via our webpage at oaklandsheriff.com or or google it and look on the state page but check the sex offender registry Um, what you don't want your kids doing is going and knocking on a door of a convicted pedophile especially if they're not with mom and dad so not something we want to think about but it allows you the opportunity to make an informed decision to say maybe just skip this house or this block or whatever you want to do Second, um, we encourage people as they look at their costumes to make sure their kids can see, you know, lots of those different costumes have covered faces or hoods and things. If they can't really see well to cross the street or see what's going on, it's a little bit dangerous. So make sure maybe even cut the eyes a little bigger or do something. It may affect the costume, but it helps the safety. And if it's in an all dark costume, you know, not a bad idea if you can just buy some uh, inexpensive reflective tape to put some on their back. Um, doesn't affect, again, the look of the costume, but gives a little something to reflect. Give them a little flashlight to carry. Everybody should have a flashlight and a cell phone to communicate if there's any kind of issue. Um, and the flashlight obviously helps them be seen and see where they're walking. And, you know, those are the kinds of things we encourage. Always stay in a group. You know, if your kids are going out um, without parents, make sure there's a group of kids. And then finally, you know, make sure that um, you, again, expect that candy when you get home. Mm, great advice. Open great advice. Michael Bouchard, thank you for your time today. It's nice to talk to you always. My pleasure. Anytime. You have a great day. You are listening to WJR's Healthy Woman Show. Coming up next, a visit to an apple orchard.
And Dr. Carol, as we close out this edition of the Healthy Woman Show, we talk about a great fall tradition in Michigan, heading out to the apple orchard. And to do that, we welcome Chelsea Cox. She is the marketing director at Blake's Orchards. Chelsea, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I can't wait to share you all of my great uh, farm knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> that is so cool. A little bit about Blake's. You know, just explain to our listeners what Blake's is all about. You know, I think from the outside, it might just appear to be, you know, a family-owned farm and cider mill. But once you step onto the property, you you are just engulfed by this experience that you really, you have to be there to feel it and see it. The smells of the donuts in the fryer, um, the aroma of the apples being pressed on site, the petting zoo filled with baby goats jumping around, kids laughing on the jumping pillows that are about the size of a basketball court. And then of course, my favorite uh, location on the property, Orchard Square Tap where anyone 21 and up can enjoy a pint of hard cider or craft beer that's made right there on the farm. So it's it's a full day experience. And um, we coined a term that we like to use called agritainment. And it's where we take agriculture and entertainment and provide one great experience that really melds those two ideas together. And you know what, uh, Chelsea, I got to tell you, you have been part of our family tradition for years. Um, we love going to to pick the pumpkins and to go get the donuts and the apple cider. And then we have the, um, the, the, um, hay rides and every, all the family would get together on a Sunday and we would go to the one on Van Dyke, the one near Elmont. And we would have our Sunday morning of hay ride and pumpkin picking and all that. And I didn't realize that this has been a family owned business since 1946 and you're celebrating your 75th anniversary. Congratulations. That's amazing. Thank you so much. And yes, yeah, 75 years. It really, I think it reminds me of how different things probably looked in the beginning. Pete and Paul Blake, uh, current owners, will tell you that there were some really hard times getting this orchard off the ground when all they could offer were you pick apples. And they did that by necessity. They would flag cars down and wave them in and say, hey, you come pick the apples, when really they were doing that because they couldn't afford to pay laborers to pick them. So it all started with this small idea of you pick and what it's grown into um, today is just, it's something that it's really remarkable. And to hear that you yourself have been there and seen it and you've shared in that family experiences, it's humbling and it's awesome. And I think what I love is seeing the different generations on the farm at once. Where else in Michigan can you see a little girl or boy with a big smile on their face picking apples? Grandma and grandpa are there sharing that with them. Mom and dad are having a pint or a burger in the tasting room. You can see cute, uh, you know, kids on their first date holding hands. And it's just it, we touch every generation in a different way. And it's it's super special. And Chelsea, women, a lot of women are involved in this operation. Talk a little bit about that. Well, as a woman, this is near and dear to my heart, but I was the first full-time employee on the Blake's Hard Cider team. So a party of one surrounded by big, burly men with beards and Carhartt boots. And, um, <laughs> you know, it was a little intimidating, but I was welcomed with open arms. And we hire on, on talent, not on gender. So I hired the best men and women in the marketing department. The accounting team is predominantly female. The cider, cider mill and tasting room is run predominantly by women. 
and uh, now in production, which is definitely, you know, a more industrial setting, typically, stereotypically men, we are now predominantly female there as well. So the people making the hard cider that you're enjoying, the ladies designing the cans that you get to admire, it's all women. Very proud of that. I am so pro female everything. And I think that is awesome. And along those lines, your hard cider, uh, you, you told us in the past was a passion in the beginning. Now it's the largest producing hard cider company in the Midwest and the eighth largest in the United States. That's incredible. So it was, it was number eight. Um, and as of last week, we got data back. We are number five in the United States. So things are happening quick out here, but yes, um, it started out with Andrew making it um, and bringing it to tailgates at Michigan State. And from what I hear, the product back then was maybe not up to the quality it is now, but Andrew brought in the best and the brightest, um, Andrew Blake, and over the last seven years has turned this into something we were making in in the back to to a full-on production facility that you can now get in 20 states, including Meyer and Kroger. That's incredible. What's the most popular cider, Chelsea? It's definitely Triple Jam, which is our strawberry, blackberry, and raspberry cider. It, you know, gets sweet up front from the strawberry, and then the raspberry and blackberry come in to make it almost a little tart. Um, And so you're left wanting more. And uh, it's taken us from the top 10 seat to number five. And um, there's nothing else like it out there, but you still taste the real apples in it. And we don't water down our ciders. So that's a big difference you'll notice between us and competitors. And what are the hours for Blake's? Oh gosh, go to blakefarms.com because um, we're on fall hours right now, which means we're open later. I believe we are eight to eight during the week, eight to nine on weekends with the tasting room staying open till at least 11 p.m. Check us out at the Big Apple for haunted attractions on weekends as well. And you're open all year round too, right? Seven days a week. You can get a pint. You can get a donut. You can do it all uh, seven days a week. And all year round? Year round. Yep. The only thing that closes is the fun land, but that's when the skating rink opens. So yes, there is something to do year round, seven days a week. That's awesome. Chelsea Cox, Marketing Director of Blake's Orchards. Thank you so much for checking in with us today. We really appreciate it. Ladies, thanks for having me. You've been listening to WJR's Healthy Woman Show brought to you by the Michigan Center for Fertility and Women's Health. On behalf of my co-host, Dr. Carol Kowalczyk, I'm Ann Thomas, and we hope you have a great night. The Healthy Woman Show with Ann Thomas and Dr. Carol Kowalczyk has been presented by the Michigan Center for Fertility and Women's Health.